0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW, avoid, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. I talked with him back in August. His name is Dennis Haas. His last name is spelled H-A-U-G-H. And we talked about an excellent book titled Pocket Guide to Communism and the Foundations of Critical Race Theory that was published in July 15th. So I, I talked to him right after he published that, but he has just published another book, uh, literally published two days ago. The title of that book is The Road to Americanism, The Constitutional History of the, the United States. And he goes very much in depth about the background and history that led to the formation of this uh, country we live in, at least in the US you year in the US. He's also put out another book this year in November, titled that is Stability, Justice, and Clarity, How to Restore Social Sanity. And that was published November 16th, 2021. And his website is at libertyreads.com. So www.libertyreads.com. But again, we're going to talk about this this book, The Road to Americanism. So Dennis, welcome back. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me again, William. It's, It's great to have you back.
1: For people who may not have heard our last discussion, can you talk, you've had a busy year. You've had three books out through uh, your press, through your your book company. Can you talk about what led you to write The Road to Americanism?
2: Um, The Road to Americanism, I I, uh, decided to write, uh, actually it was, uh, um, let's see, what's his name? Um, uh, The gentleman that started the Convention of States, I forget his name, uh, Mark Meckler, I'm sorry, I apologize to him. Anyway, he made the question, posed the question, that really led to me thinking, okay, how did we get started with this? And uh, he was wondering about in particular the colonial period. Uh, But if you think about it, if you want to really start at the root of things, you have to start at the beginning. Um, But even then, if you get real about things as, uh, and, and get into the epistemology of things, which is how do we know what we know, you end up realizing, well, sometimes what we think is the beginning isn't really the beginning. And uh, so I, this, I went through an evolution in this book and I started at, I wouldn't even say that where I start is the beginning, but it's, it's a, uh, what I believe is the relevant beginning for the uh, start of the United States.
1: And it goes way back, too. So at that time, can you kind of talk about the early colonies and the situation they were in with competing interests and how those were really kind of some of the seedings or the foundations of what led to really the beginning of Americanism?
2: Sure. Well, like I talk about, the colonial period was really one of divergence, if you will, if you look at it from a standpoint of these individual colonies. Instead of looking at them as a stateside, these were really just uh, communities. Each one in particular, like if you look at what evolved to be Massachusetts, there were several colonies that were nothing more than little towns. And uh, they had, that area had one thing in common that uh, uh, um, David Hackett Fisher calls folkways. Their particular folkway was kind of a middle-class Britain origin. And the main thing driving it was Puritanism, which came out of uh, the upheaval between uh, the war, really, between Catholics and Protestants that was taking place in Britain. And,
1: and, and so that was just one example. So. You have these different groups that really weren't states. They were just, they were building up their own kind of identity separately, right?
2: Right. And uh, in in New England, uh, because of the religious origin and the middle class nature, they actually fared better uh, with dealing with the Native Americans. And uh, on the other hand, you had the Virginians, uh, which were really the cavaliers that were uh, upper class gentlemen and didn't really know how to do anything. And so they showed up on the shores of Virginia and became really dependent upon uh, the local natives. Um, and there was a lot more conflict down there right from the get-go. Um, so that's just a, a, a minor picture of the diversity of what was happening on the shores.
1: With the different groupings and the different colonies. Can you talk about Benjamin Franklin and the Treaty of Lancaster?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, before that, actually, uh, you bring up Ben Franklin. I start the book talking about Ben Franklin. In particular, one of the things I'd like to point out, you hear this uh, story about a lady ask Ben Franklin, what kind of government have you get given us? And it leaves you with the impression that this was some random lady. And the truth of the matter is that's not the case. Uh, the actual um incident did not happen right after the um, uh, co- convention uh, stopped. It, it was not out in the street. It was actually in the Powell House in Philadelphia the next day. And so I go into detail about that. But the Treaty of Lancaster was a very interesting turning point that Ben Franklin was right in the center of because he ran a publishing company and what had happened is there was a negotiation. I think it was Maryland and Pennsylvania and then the Iroquois. Uh, and the Iroquois were actually statesmen. They had these sachems, in particular, Canassatego, uh, which a number of people considered to be the forgotten founder, had really impressed all the people present. And the particular translator is a gentleman named Conrad Weiser, who actually grew up? Um, his father was had settled in the uh, um, the valley near where the Iroquois headquarters were, and uh, Asakam, I think his name was Skilkeny, uh, had asked him if he would want uh, the Iroquois to take him and teach him how to be a man. And his father said, "Sure." So, about age thirteen, he spent I think a year or two with the Iroquois, and they considered him basically an Iroquois. He spoke uh, their language. One of the dialects, I forget, I think it was was the uh, Mohawk dialect. But anyway, this gentleman had a fascinating history just on his own, but he served as the translator. And then uh, the gentleman who actually was like the president of this uh, discussion, the convention, if you will, was a, a pastor and a good friend of uh, Franklin's, and he took all of his notes and brought them to Franklin, and Franklin read them, and it really changed a lot of the thinking that Franklin had as far as the direction of the country. A very fascinating story.
1: Right, and right, you and kind you of include, include in your, your, in your index too or, to or the, the appendix, appendix uh, something subject. about Franklin writing about the locals. So he was very familiar with the Iroquois nation. I think it was like six states of the Iroquois, and I think it's important because they were learning the, the preceding years before the framing of our Constitution. They're learning from these, even the Native Americans and kind of experiences of other kind of cultures and conflicts, right? So there's the French Ameri- French and Indian War, right?
2: Well, yeah, and in the, in the wars uh, go back even further during the colonial period. Uh, and, and a key point here is one thing we think of a unified 13 states. And, and that's far from the truth these colonies evolved uh in at different times for example one of the keys that that is is really more important than people think georgia had a lot of indirect as well as direct influence on what happened especially during the uh, constitutional period but it was not even a colony until 19 or i'm sorry 1732 so if you look at that that's And also, if you look at it, when was the nation actually splitting away? Well, that date would actually kind of be hard to pin down. You could start at 1765, like we talked about earlier. Well, that may not be the beginning, but it's probably a good date because of the Stamp Act, which led eventually to the Intolerable Acts and the First Continental Congress in 1774. So you could take any of those dates and say this was a dividing line. But for argument's sake, if we take 1765 and look at 1732, we're only talking 33 years. Right.
1: Right. So you had these different states. It's interesting because they all had their kind of own legal system, constitution independently. But it was really, I think Franklin was really a key figure. Washington was the military leader, but Franklin was the writer who was also, you know, I think you put in the book, he famously had that picture of the snake, which was cut up in pieces. Right. So, I I mean, it was really, and he was very, very much involved kind of in Philadelphia at that area. Um, Can you kind of talk about what they were thinking at that time when they were deciding, like, what are we going to do? What's what's the next step for the colonies? Uh,
2: at which point, William?
1: Well, just like, you know, leading up to 1776, the drafting of the Constitution, what were the background? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these guys were reading ancient history, Greek, Roman, trying to figure out how are we going to put this uh, country together, right?
2: Wow. Um, well, this is where the multi-perspectivity that I talk about, which is really an essential part of a republic, comes into play, because not only were each each of the colonies different, but you had these uh, folkway influences that Hackett uh, Fisher talks about. Um, you, you could we could talk about this for hours, in all honesty, um, but the colonies had varying views on what their uh, interests were. Um, the um, Virginians were actually in favor of a monarchy. Uh, on the other hand, the Massachusetts, for example, were pretty much not in favor of a monarchy, and they were actually the uh, irritation that led to our separation. Um, the uh, Pennsylvanians, because of the origin that that William Penn came from, uh, Laid down, they were more. They were less emotional than either of the others. The Massachusetts were probably the most emotional of them, uh, but the Pennsylvanians. You even had within Pennsylvania a split on on. Uh, well, it happened in all the colonies. There was definitely a split, and there's one chart that I have in there that gives you what the initial votes were on the ratification, uh, and then the final votes. And you can see in there that the splits were real and they were in every colony. Um, And some of the more influential people in in Pennsylvania uh, did not want to separate, even up to 1776. Um, But, of course, everybody knows about common sense uh, by William, um, I'm sorry, Thomas Paine. And he laid out just the mathematics of it and, Made a statement that everybody actually in the colonies knew, which was eventually our future is different from the mainland Britons. So um, that I'd like to give you a better answer, but it's just that's such a wide topic we could just talk for hours.
1: Right, but they they just realized they were different than the British. I mean, and there were still loyalists here in the United States. So oh yeah, people yeah very much so, and uh, so. But I think it's interesting. You do focus on this idea of folk, folkways and mores and things like that. Mm-hmm. Can you expand a little bit more about those and why those are important?
2: Well, they're important because they're they're like individual value systems, and so the the um, divergence of the colonial system was the fact that you had all these really rigid, independent value systems. And how did they come together? And you had some really wild things happen. Uh, I talk about in uh, Massachusetts, the Puritans up in Massachusetts actually hung a, a lady, uh, I forget her name, but she was a Quaker. Quaker, And uh, they were also persecuting Catholics up in, in New England. And, and let me, let me diverge for just a second. Massachusetts was just one state pre-state, actually, colony in what became known as the Dominion of New England. Uh, And that's got its own interesting history where you have these ebbs and flows that happen. Anyway, at the same time that the Puritans in Massachusetts were persecuting Catholics, the Puritans down in Virginia had been persecuted by the Cavaliers in, in Virginia and ended up allying with the Catholics in Maryland. So it it was just the the darndest things that you would see happening until eventually what fell out of the bottom of this is it was actually religious intolerance that led the, the people who became colonists to the colonies. They fundamentally established their own independent value systems, and then they realized they needed to get along. And this led to eventually the notion of what we know as religious tolerance.
1: Right, it is interesting. So they brought a lot of that stuff back from there. I think I think you stated in your book there was one Huguenot who came very early, who four presidents uh, are related to. I think of the Bushes and Ulysses Grant.
2: Delano, else.
1: yeah, Delano Roosevelt was all related to a French Huguenot yep. you know, who was leaving. I mean, heavily persecuted in France. Yes. so
2: the gentleman's last. Really Les- Name was Delanoi D E capital L A N N O Y.
1: Wow, good memory. Um, so it's just like one example of all these people coming to the new world looking for freedom. And that, that was interesting in your book, too. You mentioned that some of these fishermen had known the Native Americans even <laughs> at the foundation of even before they were even colonies. Like you said, that one guy came out of the woods, he was a Native American speaking English that he had learned from a fisherman. So, Samus that, Yeah, there was cross-fertilization happening from very early on. So, <clears throat> I mean, the foundation, can you talk about how this was also important, like this idea of Americanism was wrapped up in all of everything leading up to the Constitutional Convention, like how that different culture was developing from people who came from an English background?
2: Well, and you mentioned, uh, brought up the Treaty of Lancaster in 1744. Um, That was really pivotal to to understanding that in reality, we're not a European culture. And the Native American culture actually has significant impact on us. Uh, And for one thing, they had really sophisticated governing bodies that, that the colonists didn't have. So in addition to having these libraries to read about European thinking, they could walk next door and go talk to the Native Americans and get a whole different view of it. So it, it, it's really kind of astounding uh, to see the way that um, our, our Americanism, is, which is just nationalism, evolved because we were what, uh, oh, I forgot the, uh, the Brit's name, but he came up with the term of conciliatory neglect. And we had gone through, I think it was eight generations of that by the time uh, the trouble started in the 1760s. So we uh, um, we just had a, a lot of more interesting influence. Like in the Native American cultures, they would actually have raiding parties to go out and, and get slaves, contrary to what. 1619 project, and that would have you believe slavery was ubiquitous around the world, and the Native Americans practiced it. But the difference for the Native Americans, and I think this is really the root of what became uh, the um, uh, melting pot, is they would grab uh, a slave, and then they were mostly matriarchal societies, and then the women would actually decide one of three things for these Poor guys, they would either be instantly killed, they would become enslaved, or they'd be made a member of the tribe. And if they were enslaved, they might eventually become a member of the tribe. So it's it's not so much about blood with them. And I think this had uh, a profound impact on the reality of how we evolved as a culture,
1: like a melting pot culture. So that same principle is even to this day is an American trait where somebody can come from a completely different country and kind of come in at least until recently it seemed like that was much more of a more common thing up until the last two or three decades where you could literally adapt and become an american you come from russia or poland or wherever spain right. and right. so that was that was a native american trade as well so it's pretty fascinating
2: yeah and, and it's important to know that what are we talking about well with americanism what we're talking about really is a set of values and, uh, of course, that's being insulted by Marxists these days.
1: Right. And so also, like, the, there was a lot of talk in those early days. I remember reading about Franklin and stuff about how civic virtue or lack of corruption, like, he was, he knew or sensed that what they created uh, would ebb and flow or degrade over time. Can you talk mm-hmm. about what they were thinking? Like, how long would this last? Like, you, that's the intro part of Franklin. It's... Uh, it's a republic if you can keep it, right? So that's Right,
2: and the uh, key there is it actually goes back to Aristotle, that Aristotle identified that in principle our capital C constitution is derived from our little c, the constitution of society, and when Aristotle talked about a constitution, he was talking about the little c uh, more than the capital C. It wasn't, you know, some people say he was totally devoid of any understanding of a capital C. I, I would dispute that from things I've read. Uh, and by the way, I read it in the original Greek just to make sure I'm understanding what he said, because I don't trust anybody's translation. Um, anyway, the um, bottom line here is that he identified the educational system as being extremely important to keep stability in society. And the the founders were really-
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
2: education because for one thing, it was impractical uh, for cost. For another thing, they were just trying to stitch all these opposing positions together and try to create something that would hang together. Um, And um, so it was more or less just what uh, Hayek would call spontaneous order was the way that America was founded. It's a bottom-up process. It's not a top-down process
1: very different than other other countries too where they exactly. were trying to get everybody together trying to get all you know all these things ratified really from different state state colonies so it was really something else that can you talk about like what the battle was between state and federal rights and how that worked out uh, in the foundation i mean we're going to start moving on to kind of how our constitution came together but there was always that issue hamilton and some of these other characters, whether to have this you know, federal overarching uh, part of our constitution. Can you talk about that?
2: Well, be- actually, before you get into the amount of top-down, bottom-up, because in, in, in nature, there really aren't any pure forms of anything. They're, they're all hybrids. Uh, it's a question of which is dominant. Um, but in, in that, you have to start and look at federalism the the bottom-up nature of federalism. And in particular, the thing you hear about, people talk about big state, small state, uh, the divide there. And what's missing is that subject actually came up. It was the very first thing that happened in the first Continental Congress. And James Duane from New York got up and made a statement that uh, John Adams challenged him. goes, what do you mean? Well, what he was asking was, how do we decide? Because when people don't tend to think the first time any organization gets together, the first question they need to answer is, how do we decide? And it's interesting because there's a very fascinating way that Dwayne laid it out that was, as a computer engineer, I looked at it and I went, oh, my God, these guys were engineers. And they discussed it and they came up with uh, the least common denominator, and uh, as is the way that republics really work, uh, when the answer is laid out, everybody agrees to it and everybody's unhappy. So right. that was the first thing is resolve the uh, big state little, well, big colony, little colony issue. And the bottom line became each colony gets one vote, which, of course, that was 1774. When well, you get to 1787, it's not the first time they've uh, run into this problem. So, with the Constitution, uh, what came out of this is there is also another related uh, problem that the Pennsylvanians, as well as the Georgians addressed, which is the question of a unicameral versus versus a bicameral government. And so what ended up happening, uh, a key leap forward for the. US Constitution um, from which, The state constitutions were the cauldron, and I go through the chronology of how they learned from each other, there were uh, setbacks and and, uh, ways to go forward, and in particular, Ben Franklin chaired the Pennsylvania State Convention that led to the Pennsylvania State Constitution, which was extremely innovative, but it had one flaw, and that was it was unicameral, and so when we got to the Constitutional Convention, there are a lot of things that even if you just read the um, Madison's notes or Hamilton's notes or, or um, McHenry's notes or Yates, uh, there's a lot of context that is neglected a lot. And one of them is this bicameral uh, issue. But by using a bicameral government, that led us to the federal model, if you will, where we have equal representation for each state in the Senate, and then um, apportioned um, representation in the House. And that allows for, uh, as, as an engineer mathematician, it, it becomes really kind of a nice weighted function, which Duane actually brought up right away. That was one of his uh, proposals. And the problem is, they all agreed they didn't have a census. So that's why the census was put into the uh, Constitution.
1: Very important aspect to it. And I think you include like the the total polity of that time was very compared to today. It was nothing. What, three million, two and a half million, something like that?
2: That sounds about right. But what was interesting at the time, John Adams even made the statement that he could see the United States growing to be 200 million.
1: Wow. So they, they were really forward thinking. They were thinking about not only the present, but the future, how, they, how it would play out. Right. And Some people like maybe another thing you could talk about is the difference. I mean, this is. It's, it's something that the, the terms are mixed uh, around today. But what's the difference between a democracy and a republic? Because you see your people, politicians today, mm-hmm. we got to protect our democracy. Yeah, what's the difference? Why do they do that?
2: Why do they say democracy? Well, well, I think I
1: know why they say democracy, but a yeah. republic is not a democracy.
2: And well, all the, no, please continue. Well, a a republic is a form of de- democratic gov- government. The, it, it has the cornerstone of it is elections and voting. However, there's a whole lot more to it. Uh, it And I go through the whole derivation, translating Aristotle and all this throughout the book. But the bottom line comes down to that the only is the principles in these systems. A democracy has only one principle, majority rules. That's it. Uh, If you're in the minority, tough toenails. Uh, With a republic, it's different because uh, the main goal, one of the, the foundational goal of a republic is justice. And now, what is justice? I like uh, Bastiat's definition. I think it's, as a mathematician, to me, it's the most robust one, which is justice has no existence. It's injustice that exists. So justice is merely the absence of injustice. Now, there's several things that you have to keep in mind off that. What that means is true justice is impossible. It's only a theoretic thing that you strive for, and, you're, and you need to go into it realizing you're going to fail. And that's one thing that we've lost in, in society. When I was growing up as a kid, everybody had more of a connection with nature. We were more of an agrarian society. And so people didn't think they could control everything like these days. I mean, some of these people in the elites, they're absolutely nuts. Uh, what they think they can control. But anyway, um, so on that, if you think about it, you cannot put a qualitative adjective in front of the word justice without creating another injustice. It's the same as a makeup call in a football game. Okay, so the referee got it wrong uh, before that. Does that mean now that when he gets another close situation, he needs to bias that because he screwed the one team the next time? No, that's a recipe for disaster. And so the term social justice is nothing more than applying that, creating more injustices. And all that happens on that, it becomes a vicious cycle of going back and forth. You screwed me. I'm going to screw you. This does not work. And so, a republic is set up to be more stable, more just, and um, the, the title of my book, Stability, Justice, and Clarity, that title comes from Federalist 10, written by James Madison, and in there, he identifies what he calls the mortal diseases that have destroyed popular governments everywhere, instability, injustice, and confusion, and now, I would point to clarity and confusion on that because that's what Marxists thrive on in order to create the cracks in society to tear it apart. And what we're confronting today is a family of theories called critical theories. And James Lindsay, a mathematician whose work I dearly love, uh, has written a book called Cynical Theories where he details all this.
1: Right, so you have, the, you have a qualification on the concept of justice, which is a very dangerous uh, position to be in. And I've heard that people counterpoise that to actual justice as opposed to some of these other terms. But we live, in a, we live in a representative republic. We do not live in a true democracy. And some of those old thinkers, I think it's Aristotle and Plato said, Democracy is not that much different from mobocracy, and it's not it's not the most just way to do it, You're just having one vote because uh, so that's why we have represent representatives, and that's why it was put together like that. So whenever some of these there's a major politician saying our democracy is at risk. We don't have a democracy. So people just need
2: to cut right, it. and earlier generations of Americans would have uh, really argued strongly against the use of the term democracy. And that terminology came in uh, with the formulation of the New Republic um, by uh, Lipman and uh, Crawley back around 1913. Uh, So they started to twist our thinking uh, to believe that we're a democracy and that democracy is a good thing. And uh, for 2,000 years, people understood that democracy was a bad thing.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, just for the the reasons the Greek philosophers enumerated and even the even the romans didn't have a uh, democracy right nope. so they learned from the greeks and then we supposedly learned from them and uh, i mean w- this book is very important so people can get a foundation of the history and civics and things that put together in the foundation of this country though this next generation woo, they don't have any idea i i heard aoc couldn't can get the three different parts of the government together in her mind in one speech couldn't figure it out Legislative uh, executive and judicial. She couldn't spit it out. I was just like, whoa, this is really crazy. Like are they well, you talked about education. We're in trouble, yeah.
2: I don't know how you get a give an economy degree to that individual. I really don't.
1: I'm scared. I'm more scared of the illiterati than the Illuminati. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, gee, like some of these people, like, whoa, yeah. on the left, when they start talking, I'm just like yeah, yeah. Is, these ideas are terrible. Anyway. What else would you like to cover? Do you want to talk about how, I mean, you go into in your book, you talk about the issues the I mean, we talk about federalism, but starry diseases, Pornell's law. I mean, what what else would you like to cover? Word about 31.
0: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved,
1: we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <laughs>
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Uh, well, actually, Pornell's law. I think this is a really critical thing. Jerry Pornell, um, I forget which order he had. He had a master's degree in... I believe, psychology and a PhD in poli-sci. I I may have that inverted. But anyway, we lost him a few years ago. Uh, He was a really great thinker, and he wrote for Wired Magazine because he was really into technology. So this guy is an individual after my own heart. Anyway, he would create – well, on top of it, he was funny. Um, He would create these what he called iron laws. And one of his iron laws he called the Iron Law of Bureaucracy. I just shorten it to the iron law and it's pretty simple to understand really. And it's something that we should keep in mind, you know, just like the founders, they talked about Republican principles. Well, what's a principle? Well, it's kind of a rule of thumb. And so Jerry Pornell's rule of thumb is there are two groups within any organization. The first group is in line with the goals of the organization. Okay. Okay. The second group is in, wants to promote the organization over its goals. So you've got different priorities there. And the third piece of the puzzle is group two will always seize control and make the rules. So what that really means, if you look at it closely, is that any organization over time is going to get twisted, corrupted, and it's going to need to be corrected. And uh, this is important at every level level within society. And you can look at our um, all of our companies, like right now the tech companies. All right, if you look at that, what have you got? Well, I worked at Intel and I sat right next to Andy Grove at, at Intel. And Andy was um, he was an immigrant, but he was a solid American. You look at it now, and what his goal was to promote technology and make money, okay? You look at it now, I don't know that the head of Intel today has the right set of priorities. I'm not gonna lambaste him because I don't know. I don't work for the company, I don't talk to him. But it's pretty clear that a lot of these tech guys, they don't have the right priorities. And so how do we correct those? And the unfortunate thing, that is the exact thing that the United States Constitution is targeted to do on a a social society-wide scale, is every time society starts to get a little out of bounds, it'll bring it back. And this is where our lack of following the Constitution has gotten us in real trouble, because we're not obeying it. If we had obeyed the, the written limiting constitution, we'd be fine right now, but we're not.
1: Right, excellent, excellent point. It was never, it's never really brought, brought up. up and also, and like, like the Constitution amended, it. so it's, it's adapted, it's adapted to, to new understandings and reasons. So, it's not be this kind of rigid blocky thing. Some of these people look at it, say, "This is an anachronism. It's 250 years old. It's it's a living. It's updating through right. the will of the people through the legislature. So people really need to kind of understand that."
2: Well, it's funny you should mention that because I've got a lot uh, done, a lot of study in of Article Five, and uh, historically there's an interesting uh, twist to that, because um, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 had a wonderful amendment process in it, and it was actually tied with something else that we're missing. And what that was is they specified in it, and keep in mind, this was probably kind of guided by Franklin, is every seven years, and I would point out there's a difference between a mechanism that's periodic and aperiodic, and what do I mean by periodic? It means every so many many years you have to go through this process, and uh, Article Five of the U.S. Constitution is totally aperiodic, and that's one of its biggest flaws but anyway they they came up with every seven years each of the counties would appoint a delegate and i think harrisburg and and philadelphia got extra delegates and they created what they called the council of censors well what was the council of censors it was fundamentally a convention of people designated uh, to go above all the legislative and uh, branches of government and do two things. The first one was to look to see if the Constitution was being followed, and if not, uh, put, uh, levy fines and uh, over, and this is crucial, overrule Supreme Court decisions. Okay, mm-hmm. and on that score, the consuls and and I actually got a copy of all the notes from the consuls sensors and Reddit, believe it or not. And it's fascinating. They were extremely successful on that. Okay. Now, what was the other problem? Well, the other problem was, is they were to look for amendments. And this is where the wheels came off. Uh, what happened is you had the unicameralists and the bicameralists. And the unicameralists had one originally, probably because Franklin was chairing it, and he was a big unicameralist. Well, by 1783, when the first Council of Sensors came about, the bicameralists had the upper hand, but they could never get the supermajority that was required to put that amendment to go bicameral. And so it like overshadowed all of the other amendment processes. It was bloody and it was ugly. And so now four years later in 1787, William Rand or Edmund Randolph is in Philadelphia for the uh, uh, on the Committee of, uh, well, let's see, what Committee of Detail, and he was the first one to lay out any kind of a, uh, an amendment process, and so what does he do? He unfortunately looks at the 1777 uh, amendment process, uh, Article 63 in the Georgia Constitution, which was an aperiodic technique, so anyway, I go into big detail about that.
1: Yeah, you talk, yeah, you talk about talk that. that a lot. You cover certain issues that are important today, democracy, democracy socialism, socialism kind of some of these things, cool. things that are our current challenges. So I definitely recommend that people get this book. It's very well researched. Do you mind taking a few questions?
2: Not at all. No, throw I them away. Have them you mind. ever
1: heard of the term Wetico? Oswald asks, what does Dennis think of Wetico in relation to Americanism?
2: Um. I think it's a, like a, you know, do you know what it is? I've heard it, but I don't know what it is.
1: I think it's a, some kind of concept, Native American concept about corruption. I, I don't know. I,
2: I, well, it might be good to incorporate it, because like I say, you know, from my view, and I think this is a lost view, uh, we have a significant amount of Ameri- Native American culture that's embedded in ours. Uh, just through our history, we've you know, there's there's always mistreatments and injustices go on, and uh, we shouldn't deny that. But nevertheless, we do have a good reason to look at some of the stuff they come up with. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No
0: purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Gotcha. And um, where's the best place for people to get this book Road to Americanism?
2: Uh, well, the book's out on Amazon and Barnes and Noble's. Defiance Press is uh, my uh, uh, publishing company. Um, they're uh, based out of Houston, Texas, um, and uh, the main website that I have is libertyreads.com. And it'll, you can go to the Defiance Press website from there, and they point to Barnes and Noble and Amazon.
1: The main ones, right? And you're also. You, you mentioned in the pre-show you're the VP of STARS. Can you talk to the audience about that?
2: Right. Um, well, I did an analysis of, of uh, the danger we're in, and um, I came up with my own version of what's called a Pmezi PT in, in military strategic uh, terms, which is something that the military came up with uh, dealing with the Middle East way back when. Anyway, um, after... I analyzed it to distill it now down, I came up with three issues that we we just can't lose on. The first one is election integrity, and I was involved in that, testified up in Denver uh, because a mathematician and computer scientist. But then I'm also an Air Force graduate, and that got me involved with a group called Standing Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, otherwise known as STARS. And what we're doing is we're taking critical race theory right now, head on uh, in the service academies. Um, More globally, we can't lose, we can't have these critical theories permeating throughout society, but our role is the the most important place we can't have it is the military can't go woke, which it is right now. And that's probably the most dangerous thing we could ever have. So.
1: No doubt. I mean, that ideology in that environment is terrible. Also, it gives the people who are woke the means to expel or you know expulsion of people who don't agree with them. So it's it's terrible. They don't really. Yeah. You have to have. You have to kind of suck up to the ideology. I think.
2: Right, and and one of the problems we've got is. Uh, it, we've got a number of West Point and Annapolis grads as well as Air Force grads. And when we look at our enemy across the aisle, we see our friends and the split is those of us in stars are looking at this and we're saying, Whoa, 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 CRT is political. And we want it out of the military. Well, the people on the other side are saying you guys are being political because you want to get rid of CRT because they're not seeing how, how Marxist and political CRT is. So that's our that's our mission is try to bridge that gap and get everybody to see. No, we can't be doing this.
1: Good luck with that. Good luck with that. And is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up?
2: Um, no, sir. Any questions anybody's got? I'm willing. I wished I knew what way to go was, but I don't.
1: I don't. I don't either. I think I'd heard that. I think it's something that the Native Americans applied towards colonists and settlers it was a sensibility but uh, people want to reach out to you the best place is libertyreads.com correct that's correct gotcha and again the author's name is dennis haw spelled h-a-u-g-h title of the book is the road to americanism the constitutional history of the united states thank you so much for your time
2: thank you right william all
1: right stay there stay stay
0: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win